0: Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism
1: community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now, here's your host. Hi, everybody. Welcome to All Autism Talk. Our podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, a leading ABA provider serving families across the country. I'm your host, Katherine Johnson. Recently, we've had a lot of interesting conversations around teens and adults, which is really valuable for everyone because all parents will at some point have a teen or an adult. And we're also excited about this conversation, which is geared toward young children, specifically looking at new research around identification and probably most important to parents tuning in today around the issue of sleep issues, which we know are so prevalent in many of our kids. Dr. Annette Estes is the director of the University of Washington Autism Center. She's committed to clinical services, research, and training to improve the lives of individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families across the lifespan. She's also a licensed psychologist in the state of Washington, a research professor in the Department of Speech and Hearing Sciences, and an adjunct research professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Washington. Dr. Estes is especially interested in the role of the family in supporting positive outcomes for children with disabilities and improving the lives of people with ASD. We hope you enjoy this conversation, Dr. Estes. It's so nice to meet you.
0: Thank you. You too.
1: Thanks for being here. Uh, I know that you study a lot about autism and about sleep, and you've really sort of delved into a lot of sleep topics. Um, can you tell us right now, like what what is your recent research telling us about how autism unfolds in the first couple of years of life?
0: Yeah. Um, well, most children on the Autism spectrum show clear signs or characteristics by 24 months of age, Mm -hmm. Uh, but like you know, most things in the natural world there's variability, right? So autism can sometimes be detected before 24 months, sometimes after, but for the most part, by age two, an experienced professional can identify it. Now, the important part about that is that. in the United States, there's a significant gap between when autism characteristics are you know, sort of fully manifesting and when the age of first diagnosis is. So mm-hmm. around age five is the average age of diagnosis in the US. And so that gap is something that's really important. Um, it represents a lot of lost opportunities for parents to understand more about their kids and how to support them and obviously, a gap for the kids who are falling further behind at that point. Um,
1: so is that really your focus is try to, trying to find mechanisms by which we can diagnose earlier and earlier?
0: We do think that early, the earlier you can identify and sort of individualize supports to a child, the better for that child's learning and development, as well as for the family. Um, so one of the really intriguing things that that we found in the last couple of years is that there's even subtle alterations that happen in that first year of life before the clear signs of autism emerge. So things like motor um, development and visual attention and um, early, like you know, sort of early uh, preverbal behaviors like pointing and babbling and gesturing, eye contact, all those things are are reduced in kids that go on to develop autism.
1: And you've also actually looked into sort of like brain imaging during that time of life as well, right?
0: Right. So, you know, the, um, I think one of the really interesting things that's happened in the last, um, I don't know how many decades now, but at least 10 years, is that people um, figured out that infants who have older siblings with autism are at a high likelihood of developing autism themselves, So about 20% of what we call um, infant sibs, infants with older siblings with autism, will go on to develop autism. And um, so there's a research design that a number of groups um, in the U.S. and U.K. and Canada are using um, to understand these really early sort of pre-diagnostic signs and pre-diagnostic development, where we compare infants that have no first degree relatives with autism, with infants that have an older sib with autism. And specifically, um, I'm part of this Infant Brain Imaging Study Network, Mm -hmm. or IBIS is the acronym that we use. And in that study, we do longitudinal brain and behavioral assessments in babies with older sibs at six months, 12 months, 24 months of age. We do cognitive assessments, we do MRIs. Mm when the babies are sleeping, not when they're, uh, we don't use sedation. So, okay. Good to uh, know that's, and and we just have this heroic MRI team and heroic parents who stay up with the babies until they fall asleep in the scanner. And, uh, and, and in that way we've learned so much about not just the early subtle behaviors, Mm -hmm. um, but also the, early brain alterations that um, precede the the sort of diagnostic um, characteristics of autism.
1: So you're taking a, a large number of infants, siblings, and you know that there's going to be sort of like a higher proportion of those of those kiddos are going to maybe go on to be diagnosed with autism later on. So you do research on them pre-diagnosis. And then later on, you can see, is there a correlation between the results of the tests that we did when they were six months old, when they were 12 months old, um, and whether or not they were later diagnosed? Is that right?
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Got it. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. And so what are you finding? What are some of your most, um, your most intriguing results? Well, let's
0: see. Oh, my.
1: So some of our most
0: (laughs) intriguing results are that, um, you know, I think the The hypothesis we went into this with was uh, based on the fact that at three to four years of age, infants, or not infants, these are preschoolers at that point, um, Mm -hmm. with autism had larger brains than um, preschoolers that didn't have autism. And that was actually one of the more robust and maybe even the first biomarker um, that was found in autism. And so the idea was, well, okay, if this is, already present at three Mm -hmm. to four when you can actually you know solidly diagnose a kid with autism what's going on before that time right Right. in the brain something has to be happening to lead to that Mm -hmm. and what we thought was that um if we started at six months we would be starting before there were any signs brain or behavioral and then in the First, second year of life, you know, 12 to 24 months, we'd start to see the um, brain changes associated um, with autism. So, we were surprised, as often happens in science, by our findings that actually the altered many dimensions of, of um, brain structure and um, connectivity were already different at six months of age. At six months. So, so that was a surprise to us, and it's um, actually led to some really interesting findings um, that first, you know, a lot of these, when you first make findings like that, you think, okay, well, these are group differences, right? So mm-hmm. you take a group of kids that um, go on to develop autism, and you have a group of kids that don't, um, and you compare them, you might be able to see differences, but Then um, the IBIS group asked the question, well, can these differences actually be used clinically to identify who's going to go on in a predictive way to develop autism? Mm -hmm. And that was a really different approach um, than had been taken before. And again, we were really surprised by the strength of our initial findings. Um, We found that structural changes in the cortex as early as six months of age could predict with over 80% accuracy who would go on to develop autism. And that suggested that these brain changes may not only be interesting for science, which they definitely are, they might also be somehow able to be used clinically to help kind of predict um, what a child's possible um, pathway might be, which then opens up all these opportunities for. Earlier identification and earlier um, intervention—that
1: is absolutely astounding. And you were—you were the first, the first folks to discover that. Yeah, the like.
0: network because people haven't done brain imaging with babies with yeah.
1: um, autism.
0: So we're we, as always, I just have to say this isn't—you mm-hmm. uh, know—there's always a tendency to jump to the clinical uh, manifestations of things, and sure. want to. I just want to make a caveat that um, that it's still unclear. Whether mm-hmm. this is going to have clinical utility, because we have to find this in a in um, independent new group of babies,
1: mm-hmm. and so right cool. now
0: we're collecting. We're well, we're slowed down by the pandemic, but we are um, in the middle of collecting a new group of babies and seeing if those same kind of um, findings hold true.
1: And if this phenomenon is able to be replicated, say, several more times and and you, you continue to get those robust findings, how feasible would it be to be doing brain imaging on infants as sort of like a screening tool? Is that something 10 years, 15 years from now we might be seeing or? Well,
0: it's certainly... The, a big motivator for the iovis network is to translate these findings into something that actually helps um, families and, and people with autism. So It is true that right now, like, you know, MRI is expensive, it's not accessible to, you know, all communities, at least not easily accessible. And mm-hmm. our findings are really limited to infants with older SIMs with autism, so we don't uh-huh. you know, as a general population screening. Um, you know, that would be pretty, pretty expensive and probably not um, of high utility. But what we're hoping is that this leads to people figuring out less expensive, more accessible um, approaches.
1: I'm interested. I'm interested in the parts of the brain that you're really focusing on. I, I noticed in one of your studies, you talked a lot about the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. Is that the main subcortical well, function that that's affected? Yeah, the
0: hippocampus is what we found was really related to sleep onset um, okay. problems. So, so the main IBA study was was designed and carried out to answer this question about the earliest um, sort of brain and behavioral signs of autism. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we did, uh, because of my interest in sleep, we looked kind of at a secondary analysis. So it wasn't the primary sort of purpose of IBIS, but we looked at um, basically an existing questionnaire that parents had filled out that wasn't Mm -hmm. supposed to be about sleep, but it had five items about sleep. And Mm -hmm. we took those items and Really luckily, of course, um, so much of science is powered by graduate students, right? And a graduate student at one of our IBA sites had done these this pre-validated sleep questionnaire. So we were able to compare the scores from these five items with a subset of kids and find like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, actually probably a good measure of sleep onset problems. And what we found was that at, you know, from six and twelve months of age, infants that went on to develop autism. Um their parents reported that they had more um, trouble falling asleep than even infant sibs with uh, the older sibling without, without autism. Um, mm-hmm. so they they really um, were differentiated at that at that young age and that those early sleep onset problems were related to hippocampal volume. So the hippocampus specifically was was affected and that was interesting because the hippocampus has been shown in other research to be uh, related to sleep problems in adults in older kids and in mouse and, you know, animal models.
1: Can you just kind of go over the main functions of the hippocampus or, you know, anything that our listeners might need to know for, for context?
0: Yeah, well, the hippocampus is really sensitive to stress and to um, to sleep. And it's related to memory consolidation and, um, and and other functions that we think are you know kind of part of what happens when you sleep. Um, so we 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 didn't think that. Um, well, we looked at a number of what are called subcortical structures that could be um, potentially have been related to sleep, and none of them were. It was really only the hippocampus. So, you know, I think we need to find out a lot more about this because just as a sort of detail, but the the hippocampus in older in adults and and older children and adolescents tends to get smaller when uh, people are under stress or when they're sleep deprived. In In our babies, the hippocampus was bigger in the babies that went on to develop autism and had sleep problems. So interesting. We don't really understand enough about that to to be able to explain why that was.
1: So your study was initially aimed at studying the effect of poor sleep on brain development. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Um why did you decide to study this phenomenon?
0: Well, a lot of it I'm I'm a clinical
1: psychologist and mm-hmm.
0: um I direct the University of Washington Autism Center, and we have a, a clinical program there where we work with all ages of, of everything from babies to, um, to adults with autism. And it just became really clear to us that sleep was a really big factor in people's lives. It was mm-hmm. um, something that you know seemed to persist it wasn't just little kids that had sleep problems as a matter of fact um you know a lot of a lot of our you know up to 86 percent the research says of people on the spectrum have sleep problems and mm-hmm. so we I, I i became really aware of that through you know just working clinically with people on the spectrum um and then with babies i mean i think it's sort of Anybody who's had kids knows um, how big the deal sleep is, and so you know infants spend most of their time asleep. We can assume sleep serves a really critical function in these early years. Infancy is a time of incredible brain growth, really dynamic changes in the brain, and sleep is believed to be necessary for brain development to proceed normally. So there's some animal models that show like visual systems don't develop normally unless there's adequate sleep wow so um so we thought that you know focusing in on these really early years might tell us something about how um how sleep was was related to autism
1: and tell us what you found
0: well i mean like i said we found we found a couple different things we have in a different group of kids we we found that sleep um, challenges were related to repetitive behaviors in autism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's something that was in our preschool cohort. Um, in this case, we found that these sleep onset problems in infants in in our IBIS study preceded the, you know, the diagnosis of autism and was related mm-hmm. to these atypical brain trajectories of the hippocampus. So, you know, I think, Again, it's this is the first study like this, so we're not one hundred percent sure what to make of it. But Mm -hmm. I think it kind of shows that it's possible that sleep problems are highly interrelated with the fundamental um, causes of autism. Uh, They might be part and parcel of autism. A lot of times, people think of sleep problems as kind of a secondary um, problem that sort of happens to maybe because. People with autism have all these other challenges or, you know, we don't really know, but people think of it as kind of a a co-occurring condition, but perhaps Mm -hmm. it's more fundamental than that.
1: What are the types of sleep disruption that you typically see in this population?
0: Yeah, that is a great question. There's several kinds of sleep problems. One of them is taking a long time to fall asleep. Um, so the technical term sleep onset latency. So how long it takes to fall asleep that can that can be a problem for um, kids on the spectrum. Early morning wakings. So um, you know which then you know sort of lead to not getting enough sleep. That can mm-hmm. be a big problem. And then waking up multiple times at night can be um, a problem too. And again, we don't really understand the mechanisms, the why behind this. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's one of the really important things that we have to figure out as a field, but essentially every single person wakes up multiple times a night. We just don't remember. So sleep cycles happen, um, let's say in an adult six times. And each time you go through a complete cycle of stage one, two, three, four sleep, you have a really brief point at the end where you wake up. But what happens is you go right back to sleep, and it you don't remember it at all, and you do another you know you repeat the next cycle of sleep. Um, so these wakings are really natural. What seems to happen um, in when sleep is disrupted this way is that you don't fall back asleep. You wake up, and for some reason you're not able to sort of go back to sleep easily and without you know a lot of disruption. So right now what we're doing. Is helping parents figure out the you know sort of the most effective behavioral and environmental approaches to help kids learn to fall back asleep
1: um, mm-hmm.
0: really easily and 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 get to sleep in the first place without you know a ton of effort. <laughs> it takes um, some you know we know this anyway that some kids naturally are more easily fall into healthy, good sleep patterns And some kids are, are that way. it just seems like a higher proportion of kids on the spectrum have a rough time with this.
1: Um, I was just going to say that I think that it's uh, really important for clinicians to know, because I think a lot of our kids, you know, obviously have have sleep issues. And a lot of parents have, you know, this kind of carry with them this guilt of, am I doing something wrong? Mm-hmm. And I think it's really good for everybody to know that this is you know, in all likelihood, very biologically based.
0: Exactly. And that's um, that's one of the things that I think if nothing else, we have these, um, you know, these approaches that we can help parents with, coach parents to um, do at home with their kids. And even if their kid doesn't um, kind of fall into really healthy sleep patterns as a result, at a minimum, the parents can, know that they've done all they can in that way
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know sleep problems can always be worse that's one of the really challenging things that you don't want to figure you know you don't want to go down that road you want to have your kid have as good of a, a, a sleep pattern as they can have uh, based mm-hmm. on their biology and so there's a lot parents can do even if they have a kid with a more biologically based sleep problem and then of course you know parents Often we'll talk to their doctors about additional things um, once they've kind of sorted out like, okay, we're doing everything we can behaviorally and my child is still having a hard time. Then they can go to the melatonin, to other medications, mm-hmm. obviously checking out medically based sleep problems like obstructive sleep apnea. Um, those kind of things need to be, you know, sort of thought through and, and rolled out too.
1: So when people are having these, when, when people with autism are having these additional um, sleep, well, issues with, waking up in the middle of the night, it's not necessarily that their sleep cycle is shorter or interrupted, is that right? It's just that they are having trouble with that with that function of just going right back to sleep.
0: Uh, well, that's the first place we start. Now, there are studies that have been done that that show that there are some, some differences in um, the sleep cycle for people on the spectrum, like shorter REM sleep, which is that um, rapid eye movement part of the cycle where you dream. So there mm-hmm. might be some differences there. Our research hasn't been in that area, so um, I can't Go personally ahead. speak to that, but, um, but just having read other people's work, I think there's, there's some differences there potentially.
1: So we know that these sleep disturbances start very, very early on in life, at least as early as six months. We know that they're sort of affecting these subcortical structures that are connected to sleep. Um, And potentially connected to learning and memory and all of that, but we don't have any idea if there are you know if there's sort of like a common cause or if one of these things is causing the other. Um, Is there a way to ever find that out or you is there a research direction that that you're going in that sort of leads to that eventually.
0: Well it's a really good question we thought you know sort of um, naively apparently we thought well wow if we are studying infants at six months of age we can kind of sort that out but and but you know what we found out was that things are probably already present earlier than that and that they do start off in a very subtle way so even these sleep onset problems are not really severe. I mean, all babies are really rough when it comes to sleep, right? And mm-hmm. that's just kind of what it means to be a baby.
1: <laughs> Mine were. <laughs> yeah. I can tell and you so, that. <laughs>
0: exactly. And so, so it's really hard to tease out like, you know, on an individual, I'm like, oh yeah, this baby is having a harder time than other babies. Mm-hmm. But when you do that retrospective look, you can say, yeah, it's present. There's a subtle additional challenges they look that looks different in the kids that go on to develop autism. And you know probably honestly it would take research like with mouse models, that kind of thing, where you can sort of do experimental studies to be able to to definitively say, okay, this is a part of autism or this is a consequence of of some other um characteristic of autism, something like that.
1: So Dr. Estes, I'm interested in hearing what your recommendations are for future research in these areas.
0: Well, one of the things that I've learned is to really appreciate the developmental course of these different processes that we're studying. So for example, in the brain imaging work that the IBIS study has done, what we have found out is that early on, you know, a particular part of the brain might be enlarged at six months um, compared to kids that don't develop autism. But then at 12 months, kids um, in those groups might be indistinguishable from one another. And then at 24 months, Mm -hmm. you know, the relationship reverses and the kids with autism have smaller structures. And that, you know, so Mm -hmm. there's this really dynamic process and so a lot of research tends to be cross-sectional, right? It tends to happen mm-hmm. at one period of time. And I think that we need to bring a developmental perspective to everything that we're studying with autism and mm-hmm. not just focus on one time period. So when it comes to sleep, um, you know, the hippocampus seems to be enlarged in the kids with sleep problems that go on to mm-hmm. the autism. mm mm-hmm. All right, so there's this developmental course. Um, mm-hmm. So the developmental perspective is critical. And I think, you know, it's kind of underappreciated how much a longitudinal, per, you know, kind of study design can teach you. Um, I think the other thing is that the impact of sleep problems has been pretty underappreciated in autism, even though people know that it coexists mm-hmm. with um, autism. I don't think people have um, really learned enough about that. Um, so for example, you know, how much does it imp- impair kids learning or ability to benefit from intervention? So, you know, if you're trying to teach a child to communicate and to, um, you know, to do all the things they need to do, um, but they're not getting adequate sleep, mm-hmm. that could actually be a, a an important thing for, for for interventionists to understand more about and to integrate into their interventions.
1: I'm curious to know if there's been any research on, you know, for instance, the size of these subcortical structures and if behaviorally based interventions to improve sleep can change that.
0: There have been a few studies that have looked at, um, for example, EEG responses to faces versus objects as a result, you know, sort of suggesting that those brain responses um, become more similar to typically developing kids after intervention. Uh, So there have been a few studies like that, but they're, they're really, that part of the field is really in its infancy.
1: Sounds like there's a lot more to be done.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think when also when it comes to sleep problems, we, you know, I was talking a lot about, or you and I were both sort of thinking about the biological versus environmental or behavioral um, sleep Mm -hmm. problems. But really, the research on that is is very um, sparse at this point. So I think we just really need to understand more about the implications of biological sleep problems versus, you know, more behavioral sleep problems. And, um, and we need to get parents, we need to figure out a lot more ways for parents to get the, the skills they need to help their kids with sleep. So I think there's just a lot of information out there. um, But how can we better integrate that into our autism interventions? And
1: is that work that you are doing currently in your clinical role? Yeah, we have a
0: sleep clinic at the Autism Center at UW, and one of the things that we're doing is, is really trying out ways um, in our clinic, kind of like a, a little lab almost, to figure out what are the best ways to do this, because you know we have a team of BCBAs mm-hmm. and SLPs and psychologists who work with our families, and really traditionally none of us had, had a lot of training in sleep, so people, you know, even at the Autism Center, we don't have, we don't come, we didn't come into um, our clinical work with that expertise, and so now we're trying to figure out, okay, well, should we train every single person so everyone has that um, kind of expertise, or is it better to have some people specialize and then collaborate together, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of possibilities and um, and we're really just at the beginning of our process and figuring out how best to do that.
1: And so do you have any parting words of advice for parents of kids who are with autism who are struggling with sleep hygiene? Yeah,
0: I mean, I really believe that um, by doing, you know, getting support um, and doing the everything you can do that's in your control. That that's the first step, so that you know that um, you know you're supporting your kid's sleep as as well as can be done, and to really try. I know it's so hard, but try to get sleep yourself. Um, you know that mm-hmm. the analogy of putting you know when you get on a plane and they say put on your oxygen mask first, and then help the person next to you. I mean, I think parents really are their kids lifeline and you need to take care of yourself as best as possible so that you can be there for your kids and um, sleep is the a really poignant example of of ways that parents you know kids sleep problems really often lead to parents having sleep problems too
1: so true and such an important thing for all of us to remember and a great message of self-care yeah for those parents out there who definitely need it Well, Dr. Estes, your research is fascinating. I wanna thank you so much for being here with us and for doing such important work.
0: Thank you so much, it was really fun talking.
1: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Before the interview with Dr. Estes, I read some of her research and I found it really interesting. But it was fascinating to hear her talk about her latest findings and how young brain differences and sleep disturbances appear in infants and toddlers who go on to receive a diagnosis. And then I appreciated that we got a little, we got to speak a little bit more about some practical sleep issues. And I just love that she ended on that very important note of parent self-care. You can listen to our other episodes on Apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. We appreciate your reviews and ratings if you're so inclined. And if you have show ideas for us or a question, email us at at learnbehavioral.com or find us on Instagram or Facebook at @autismtherapies. Autism Therapies. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn
0: Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.